Hello and welcome back to the Running Wild podcast. I'm your host, Tone Malazzo, and we are still working on our series of the Running Wild novellas anthology volume two. And we're back to part two. We are talking to Jason Zeitler and his story, Like Flesh to the Scalpel. Hello, Jason. Hello. So you described your story as having ghost story elements, but not being a ghost story. Uh, right. I, I think uh, if I had to kind of label it in some way, I'd say it's psychological realism. But in, in beginning in other three sections in the novella, beginning in section two, you start to see kind of ghost story elements, I would say. Okay, so what does psychological realism mean to you? Well, I don't know what the origins are of that term. I know it's been used to describe pieces that were written as early as the early 20th century. But I would say it probably is more to do with kind of the technique, the fictional techniques that are being employed. Things like interior monologue. I mean, the novella is written in first person narration, so it just kind of lends itself to having lots of interiority. Consistent with, you know, thematically what's going on in the novella, there is a lot of interiority. From what you told me, it was sort of a descent in the madness, or at least, at the very least, you have an unreliable narrator. Uh, that's a good way of describing it, yes. It actually was kind of loosely autobiographical. I think most writers tend to mine things from their own personal experiences. In the process of writing it, it moves farther and farther away from my own life. And I think it just makes it easier, you know, as a writer, especially when you want something to be, uh, to involve lots of interiority, you have to be able to, in some way, identify with the protagonist. So I started off kind of writing as though it were based on my own experiences. And by the time I got into, I'd say, near the end of the first section of the three parts, it resembles nothing like my own life. But it's always been something that's really interested me. You know, I've done lots of reading about writers, especially modernist writers from 1920s, who you know, had like psychological problems. Uh, and there's a connection between that and creativity. And so that was kind of the root, the basis for the, the writing. And it just, it developed into something else. I write about mental illness a lot myself. So my first novel was a, a person with schizophrenia who was a shaman as well, because there's a lot of similarity between the way people with schizophrenia perceive the world and practices mm -hmm. of shaman. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I wrote that uh, like 10, 12 years ago, whatever. And the, the approach to depicting mental illness has shifted a bit. And now it's as, as time is moving on, my novel is getting more and more problematic. It's not as extreme as this, but like in the nineties, people who were writing Batman discovered a lot of Batman villains could have mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. So they worked a lot of that into it. But now looking back on it, that whole era is basically a, a stories of a, a man with a lot of money beating the crap out of the mentally ill. <laughs> yeah. So have you, did you consider how the, this is going to be received while you're working on it? Well, I, th I think it will be real, well received because there's so many other things going on. And I, I did in many ways identify with the protagonist. And it ends up, uh, by the time we get to the third section of the novella, it's, it's set in Colombo, Sri Lanka. They're, at the same time that all these things are happening with the protagonist, he's also kind of reliving some of the, the experiences that he had in this coming of age sort of part of the story. And there's also a love story that's mixed into to all of this. And I, I think a lot, of, a lot of readers who are going to end up reading my novella, if they haven't already, are just going to see the ways in which, as the writer, my involvement in the writing is going to be apparent in the sense that I'm, I'm clearly, I clearly like the protagonist. Uh, and not only because it is loosely autobiographical, but just who he is as a person, I think is, is something that 
um, a lot of not just me as the writer, but a lot of uh, readers will identify with. Now, again, this is an anthology of novellas. Did you set out to write a novella? Well, I, I'm probably going to, in answering this question, I'm probably going to have to touch a little bit on my own personal history. So I, I started writing in 2013 in a serious way. And it was something that I always wanted to do. Um, when I when I did my undergraduate studies, I was I started off as an English major. I, I think at the back of my mind was uh, this idea that eventually I was going to become a writer. And so I, I started kind of seriously doing it about five years ago. And the novella, I think, was the, the second piece I tried my hand at. And long-form prose is a completely different animal than writing um, you know, narrative essays or short stories. And I quickly found that I couldn't sustain it. And so I, I put it away for a while. I, I just I didn't feel like I could complete it. And it also needed, I think I needed to just sort of be away from it in order to, to, to be able to figure out kind of thematically how I was going to fit everything together. So I, I think initially when I started working on it, um, I wasn't entirely sure how long it would end up being. I kind of had an idea that it was going to be much longer than the typical short story that I had I'd written prior to that. But I, I ended up going back to it a couple of years ago and I finished a draft and it was really rough in places. I'll admit to that. Um, I, I probably shouldn't have been trying to you know, submit it to uh, magazines and um, small presses, but I did. And thankfully, uh, Lisa Kastner at, at Running Wild accepted it, and we ended up kind of working together a little bit earlier this year. And it evolved into what it is now, and it's I, in the version that um, Running Wild published it in, it's about 55 pages. How did you discover Running Wild? Well, when I submitted it last year, I, I'd you know gotten to the point where I was submitting you know short stories pretty pretty heavily, and I started doing that um, I'd say probably two years ago, and so I was getting a really good sense of what was out there, and had through Submittable, I just did a search for magazines and small presses that publish novellas, and that's how it came across running well. Now, how many publishers were taking novellas at the time? Very few. There's one magazine that is known for, for publishing novellas, and I think they're actually um, about to have their last issue. So it's something that I think is hard to sustain. It's called the Seattle Review. I know like there are, there are competitions you can submit. I think Texas Review you know, sponsors a, a contest for novellas, and um, there are a handful of others, but it's, it's really hard to, to publish that form, even though historically novellas have been highly successful and, and uh, many of the the pieces that have been enduring over time have been novellas. I think it's kind of a Hollywood friendly form and it's, it's a right about the right length of a movie. Mm -hmm. you know, whereas a novel, when it gets adapted to film, they always have to cut pieces out. But then even though e-readers are very popular, the physical distribution is also very important. It's, it's tough to get a novella out. It's tough to put it in bookstores. So it has to be some sort of serial publication. Or you've got to somehow, you know, if you're doing like a collection, you can throw it in with a collection or something. So what are your, some of your other publications? Well, I, I would consider myself an emerging writer. Uh, I, my, the first publication I got was a couple of years ago with an, an online magazine. And I, I think like most writers, you know, once you start to kind of make inroads in publishing, like it just makes it easier. Mm -hmm. And so shortly after that, I had a narrative essay that was accepted by Midwestern Gothic. And I think the pattern 
for my writing is it tends to be dark. And so one of the things I've learned in, in doing submissions that they have to be really targeted and you've got to find, you know, magazines or small presses that like the things that you're doing. So what is it about the Midwest that you think synchronizes with the Gothic genre? Hmm. That's a tough question, but I, th I think in some ways there, there may be kind of insecurities, people who live in the Midwest. Uh, you know, when I go back now, I visit people and I give them a little bit of my history, the fact that I went to university on the East Coast and I worked in New York and L.A. for a while. And um, I think kind of initial reaction to that is that, you know, because I've gone off and done all these experiences and I haven't been in the Midwest for a number of years, that somehow I must think myself above people from the Midwest. Really? That's, that's the vibe you get from... I think so. That's the initial reaction I get. But once once you start talking to people and they realize, you know, like, you're no different than them. I don't think of myself, uh, you know, just because I've gone off and, and done, had all these experiences, I don't think of myself as better than anybody else. But I, I think there is kind of this insecurity. And I think a lot of places in the Midwest, they are kind of on the wane. There are places that um, I spent a lot of time in when I was growing up in South Dakota uh, on the eastern part of the state, like the northeastern part of the state, that are just kind of hanging on for dear life. They, they weren't doing very well when I was a kid. And, you know, with things that have been going on with agriculture and the economy, you know, some of these towns are, are like probably a third of the size they were when I was a kid. You know, they've got a main street that's like a block long and... I mean, this is a generalization, but I think there is a little bit of despair at times. And there are people who are, who are living there still and they're looking out the rest of the world and saying, you know, like, we have nothing in common. And yet I don't think that's true. I feel like I'm a different person just because I've, I've lived in different parts of the U.S. and traveled abroad. And So you're living in Tucson now. You've got this Midwestern route and you just talked about how there's a perception that everyone moves away, then becomes the other. Were you aware of that phenomena happening when you decided to move? No, I mean, it wasn't something that occurred to me when I, you know, because I left South Dakota when I was 17. So I think I was young enough not to really be thinking about those sorts of things. One of the reasons why I left is I didn't feel like there were going to be lots of opportunities for me in South Dakota. Until I was 12, I was in a place called Mitchell. And back then, the population of Mitchell was about 14,000 people. And so unless you, um, you know, have family who owns a business or something, there are very few opportunities you're going to have to actually find employment. So you'd have to, you know, get a law degree or something or get a medical degree. And so I decided for a variety of different reasons that I was going to leave South Dakota. And I ended up uh, going to university on the East Coast. And just one thing led to another. Actually, I went back to South Dakota recently. And it's in many ways exactly the way I remember it, the expansiveness. I think it'd be a great place to raise a family. I don't think I'd really want to go back myself now for an extended period of time. But there are lots of things that are attractive. I stayed in a cabin in South Dakota or in the Black Hills for three days, and it's just a really beautiful place. Do you have any other publications coming up? Um, no, I'm still trying to get publications, and it's it's a long slog. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to happen again soon because I, I keep getting lots of personalized rejections. That's always a good sign. Yeah. It's depressing, but it, it's also <laughs> uplifting to some extent. Okay. Well, if anything about writing is it's depressing. <laughs> it's just a sea of rejection. Uh -huh. What are you working on then? 
Well, actually, I, in, in part because of my experience with the novella, I've, I have the courage now to try to tackle a novel. So I'm starting to do research for a novel. I'm really fascinated by um, South Asia. And so a lot of the, the stories that I write are set or have some connection with South Asia. Now, do you mean India or do you mean like Vietnam? Uh, mainly Sri Lanka. And so okay. I, the idea for the novel is it's going to be set in Colombo in the 1930s. And it's just a time that has always fascinated me. When I was um, an undergrad, I, when I got my English degree, I was studying uh, modern studies. And so we had to read a lot of modernist writers. And so like um, Joyce and Virginia Woolf. And, um, you know, we read, for one of my classes, we read Passage to India. And I just feel like, it's something that I want to explore myself and something I said to somebody the other day, which might sound kind of strange, but it's almost like I'm speaking with the dead. Now, normally at this point, I talk about where can people find you on social media, but you are purposely eschewing that, it seems. <laughs> which, uh, you know, also as a writer, you know, people keep saying, oh, you got to be on social media, you got to be on social media. And having been on social media for you know years now, I'm not so sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure it's a, it's a good thing. Just... For society or for the individual, so I will not. I'm not going to criticize you for not being on social media, but I'm curious about what what your decision is to to go this route. Well, I, I decided several years ago that I want to simplify my life. It's crazy, but I don't even have a cell phone. Hmm. Um, there are times when I, I desperately need a cell phone and for GPS purposes or whatever, and I end up just you know borrowing my wife's. I think a lot of the stuff that you see on social media anyway is just you know, somebody wanting to create a persona and it's not really necessarily who you are as a person. Oh, absolutely. It's everything is pro wrestling, right? <laughs> everything, everything is a created persona for the world to see. Of all people, writers are probably the most likely people to do that sort of thing. So I'm not going to like, I'm not going to berate people for choosing to do that, but I mm -hmm. just something that I would rather not be spending my time on. The only merit I see to it is it is a good way of maintaining an audience. It gives a place for people to stay in touch with you so that they can keep a pulse on what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Jason. Is there anything else you want to say before we go? Um, no, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. All right. Sure. Once again, this has been Running Wild Novellas Anthology, Volume 2, Part 2. Jason Zeitler is the author. Like Flesh to the Scalpel is the story. And your host has been Tone Malazzo. Thanks, everybody, for being with us.